Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Um, it's really good to have you with us today. My name is Matthew, and I'm the parish pastor here on the east side. And thank you so much for um, to our band for leading us in um, in those songs. That was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, it was really amazing. Um, I, uh, I'm going to read to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, and um, then we'll then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in uh, to today's teaching. And then someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, well, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, I have kept all of these. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, well, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give, to the, give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And when the young man heard it, he went away grieving for he had many possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Um, God, we, we thank you for Jesus, our good shepherd, who knows what we need, um, who knows where we need to be led. And we, um, we ask that we would listen for his voice, and when we hear it, we would come running to him. God, we pray against the resistances in our heart, especially as we talk about something as sensitive as money and something so central and foundational and even identifying to us. We just ask God that um, we pray that the resistances in our heart would we'd put our guard down and we would begin to, to trust the voice of our shepherd. And we ask these things in his good name. Amen. Uh, so we are in a series which we are uh, calling citizens for basically the entire fall. We're just in Matthew's gospel studying the kingdom of God and what does it mean for us to live as citizens of that kingdom. And today we're going to talk about something that is, of course, central to any kingdom, which is currency. What are the things that you spend in the kingdom? What is the stuff that you give and what do you give it for? Um, what is the value? And so we're going to talk about stuff that's really sensitive today. Uh, every time in the past that we've talked about money that I've had the, the privilege and, and uh, the weight of talking about money, I just realized like there are very few things that are quite as sensitive. Like what we're talking about today, like rattles around in our hearts, keeps us awake at night, is the first thing we think about in the morning. It's the sort of thing that actually is always around in the back of some of our minds, and we're full of fear around it. And so as we talk about these things, it can just feel like Jesus is putting his finger right in the middle of what hurts in us. And, and so I just want to remind us that Jesus is our good shepherd, that he, he knows what we need, and he's inviting us to listen to his voice and to follow him into this kingdom. And so I actually want to begin with that as our first idea, that Jesus loves us. Um, I, probably every sermon should start that way, but I really think it's appropriate to start this sermon this way. And even though Matthew's gospel doesn't capture this moment, Mark captures this moment in his version of this story, the exact same story. But it says that after the man had said, all these I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? It says, and Jesus looked at him and he loved him. 
And then he said, go sell your possessions. In other words, the thing that Jesus is asking this man to do that feels like it's taking away everything he knows that he needs in life is motivated by love. Jesus isn't angry. He's not trying to ruin this person's life. He's not looking for an excuse to punish him. He actually loves this this man enough to say the hard thing. Jesus loves us. Um, This, we can enter the teaching knowing this, that this is what he is motivated by. Jesus never minces words on how difficult it is to be his disciple. And yet, um, And yet he asks us to walk the difficult road nonetheless, which tells us something about what Jesus um, knows or thinks he knows, which is this. The thing that he's inviting you and me into is worth the cost. He's actually, in his mind, calling us into a thing that is worth suffering, losing for. It's greater than it. Whatever price we pay to obtain it is nothing in comparison to what we what we get, what we gain um, when we receive it. Therefore, Jesus is looking for people who have recognized that they have come to the end of their search in a sense. Like they've looked everywhere. They've tried the things. They've tried the, the, the shortcuts. They've looked for success. Jesus is looking even in this instance at a man who has already achieved the highest of heights in life. He is rich. He is young. He's probably very good looking because why not? And he's powerful. He has authority. This person has sway and influence, a large platform. This person has everything and yet he is is before Jesus. Why? Because it didn't work. Jesus knows that the thing that he is calling a person into is worth sacrificing for and that the people who are usually most willing to do that are those who have tried. And it's not working anymore. The coping mechanisms aren't working anymore. The alcohol is not working anymore. The self-medicating practices aren't working anymore. I need something else. And so Jesus sees this man. And in Mark's gospel, it literally says he runs to Jesus, which you got to be a pretty desperate place. Um, to be wearing robes and running around Palestine 2,000 years ago. He runs to Jesus because he's looking for something, which is our second point. He is looking for the good life, which he says eternal life. And don't think for a minute that when he says eternal life, he's thinking about heaven. He's not thinking about clouds or the sweet by and by, and grandma, but she's young now, and my dog who I had to put down, and we're all together again. That's not on his radar. He's thinking about a very tangible, material reality, something that is experienced now and to come, but it is on the earth. He's thinking about what you and I would call the good life, a life that is rich and full, a life that is marked by the biblical idea of shalom, a full-hearted flourishing and well-being, not simply the absence of conflict, but the experience of deep and abundant joy. This is what this man is looking for. He said, I hear essentially you're a person who knows how to find this, which by the way, what must that mean about what Jesus was like if people would come to him and ask him about the good life? Like what person is going to come to me and say, what do you have going on that I can get? Because I'm like, you have something. Like, who's going to ask me that question? Jesus must have had such a, and what what must his essence have been like? What must the experience of his character have been like to to solicit this conversation or this question in a stranger? Tell me what the good life is like. How do I find it? And so Jesus looks at this man and he says, well, um, how are you doing on the commandments? Which is a really interesting thing to do. It's not what we would think Jesus would do in this moment. It's what we think like a fundamentalist preacher would do in this moment. Like, I want, I want to have a, a happy life. Well, are you sleeping with anyone? Like, that's the question you would expect from a fundamentalist. But what Jesus does is he says, well, how are you doing with what, um, 
my father says you are to do, which is essentially, he's saying, you, you say you want the good life. Well, let me ask you, are you letting God lead your life? You say you want the good life. Like, are you submitted? Are you trusting someone else to, to, to guide you in your life? And then he lists off five of the 10 commandments, just sort of like randomly. He misses five of them. He lists five of them. And then he gives the summary commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. And this man says, I have done all that. I've done all those things, which is, which is how we get to what we see as our third point. We're going to see what is preventing this guy and what is not preventing him from following Jesus. And it's pretty, it's pretty marked because what isn't preventing this man from following Jesus in this moment is disobedience and, and, and sin in his life, badness, bad behavior. He says, I've kept all these commandments. Now, this tells us that either he's delusional or he's a liar, he's deceptive, or maybe he's actually genuine. Let's just, and let's be generous. It's good to be generous. Let's be generous and assume that this man is telling the truth, that he's actually a person who says, I have kept these things. I actually am a good guy. And that's a remarkable thing to realize. It's not that Jesus says, well, you need to follow the commandments. And he's like, well, I'm good with all these things except for that one. No, he's actually honored his mom and his dad. He's been faithful to his promises, to his wife. He hasn't extorted people. He hasn't robbed people. He tells the truth. He's one of those people that sometimes is actually annoyingly a truth teller, but he always knows, you always know what he's actually thinking. And, And he hasn't killed anyone. And so he's able to say like, I've done all these things. Like I'm a pretty good guy. And Jesus says, he doesn't say, Come on. Remember seventh grade? He doesn't do that. He just, he just takes it. He accepts it. You see, the thing that is keeping this man from following Jesus is not something that is bad in his life. It is actually something that is good in his life. That's what's preventing him from following Jesus, which is why Jesus, in his love, looks at the good thing and puts his finger right on it. And he says, well, if you would be perfect, if you want the good life, if you want to follow me, you need to get rid of the thing that is preventing you. In the first century, in Judaism, riches were a sign of God's favor. They were not seen as a curse. They were not seen as something that you wanted to get rid of. They were a sign that God was for you, that he was blessing you. No one would have looked at this man and said, he must be a very unrighteous man. They would have assumed the opposite about him. This person is a person who keeps his word. This is a person that we can trust. This is a person who has been given these things because God has chosen to bless him. And yet, it is these very things that are keeping him from Jesus. The problem for the rich man is not that he's rich, in other words. The problem is that he can't imagine him not, himself not being rich. That's the problem. It's not that he has this good thing in his life, it's that this good thing has become a God thing in his life. It's become an ultimate thing, an identifying thing, something that he has to have. A good thing has become an essential thing, and now he can't possibly part with it. And Jesus puts his finger right on that. He gives this man essentially a way out a way out of this thing that had captured him, that had trapped him, that had given him an identity. He says, well, the way out is to sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. This is, of course, like um, meant to be, I think, terrifying to us as we hear it, especially here. Like, we're all pretty wealthy. We're all doing pretty well here, like in the richest country in the history of the world. Um, what, was it, what would that even mean to sell your possessions? And just to be clear, this is not the only time Jesus ever says this. He says it also in Luke chapter 12, and he says it to all the disciples. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is giving a commandment like to every person in the church, like sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. That's, that's not the point. 
What I'm saying is, this, he's calling this man to a significant lifestyle change. He's calling him to give until it hurts. He's calling it to give until people begin to question the wisdom of his giving. He's calling him to be that generous that it looks promiscuous. How can a person be so reckless? The main point is not that he has the money, but that the money has captured him. And the question for you and me is not just has money captured you, but what has captured you? What good thing has become an essential thing? What, what neutral thing has taken up a seat of power in my life that I cannot now imagine myself without it? What thing has begun to give me identity? Money is, of course, the point of the story, so we'd be, we'd be dumb not to talk about it. And it's hard for us to talk about money because it is so central to our security. I think if I actually, if we really got down to the, like the core, the nut of like what makes us feel safe, it has something to do with a number sitting in an account. It has something to do with how many months of, that, of, of, of expenses we have sitting in that account. And some of our insecurity has to do with how many liabilities we have out there or how much money is sitting on a credit card or whatever it is. So much of our actual sense of what makes us secure rests in the amount of cash that you and I have. And so we're afraid to talk about these things because we actually know that we're not talking just about money. We're talking about security. We're talking about something that actually makes us feel um, like we can sleep. Richard Baxter, um, say a pastor, a Puritan, and also a person who said some racist things in his life. Um, but he did write a book called A Christian Directory. And he gives a couple of instructions around uh, envy. And they're, I think, worth mentioning to us. He says, um, this is how you can know you have a problem with envy or a problem with a, an idolatry around money. He says, one is that you find yourself constantly envying those who have more, you know, so the question is, is like, how are you with the people in your neighborhood that are able to do expensive renovations on their home that you can't afford? Like, what happens in your heart? How are you when coworkers are able to go on nicer vacations than you can go on? Or if you have like a sibling who always has like a newer car than you, or whose kids always have newer shoes than yours? Like, how, how do you do when like people around you have more than you? Does envy, is envy just a part of your life? Are you always noticing when other people went shopping and you sort of feel bad about yourself and angry at the person because of it. He's like, that's a sign that there's like an idolatry in our life around money. Just, I'm just constantly aware of other people's expenses. I'm constantly aware of how I don't have what they have. Another sign that Baxter gives is that if you find yourself regularly worrying about it, just, and I know that there are always seasons where we worry about money, like big expenses come along, you know. Um, I mean, in my family, it's like we have braces going on and we have, you know, car repairs. And it's like things come along and they're like, oh no, this is going to cost more than I thought it was going to be. But the question is, is like, is this like an every week thing? Is every single like 15 day period a stress point for you because you just never quite make it to the end without going over your budget? Are you constantly worrying and thinking about how much money you don't have? But Baxter says, that's a sign that money has become a source of idolatry for you. And so Jesus says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this thing. It's a good thing, but it's become a God thing in your life. We're going to reorient you to what it is there for. You have been given much so that you can give it away. That's why you have. You have extra so that you can pass it on. That's what the extra is for. Uh, John the Baptist says this really well in his early sermons from early on in the gospel. They come to, G uh, to John, a number of different people, and they're trying to figure out what does his preaching ministry mean? And they're like, what do I need to do, John? What about me? And he's like, oh, well, do you have two coats? 
And they're like, yeah, I do. He's like, oh, well, one of those coats goes to someone else. It's just very simple. Do you have two loaves of bread? Actually, I do. Well, that's great. One of those loaves of bread goes to your neighbor. Like you just like, you don't need the extra. The extra goes to other people. In that sense, like the Bible is incredibly concerned with us taking care of others in the society. We are not individualists in a biblical world, worldview. That's, that's not a political statement. It's a theological statement. The Bible knows nothing of individualism in the way that we understand it here in the West. If you have extra, the Bible says that extra exists for other people and not, not first and foremost uh, for yourself. And yet I think there's other ways. There are other things that, that maybe are places where Jesus is asking me to give up something. One of the things that I, as I was working on this text this week, that I just felt convicted on was, um, and this is, a little, this is a little weird, but it certainly speaks to the moment that we're living in. I think that some of us are being asked to give up, to essentially sell um, a version of American history that we have always believed because it has worked for us. It has given us a version of this country that feels good to us. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to let this go. That not everyone in this country has had an experience like I have had. And in fact, that is not an accident, but it is actually the engineered product working over centuries of time to create the massive inequity that we see today. That a system was engineered to advantage some and disadvantage others. And we now live in the cumulative results of centuries of systemic disenfranchisement. And as a person of privilege who was born into majority culture, just because I was. Like, I never, like, got to, like, I wasn't given, like, here's different tubes you can go in, and I chose the right door. Like, just happened. Part of what I think John the Baptist, part of what Jesus says to me is, take your privilege, take the extra, and give it away. How are you using what's been given to you for the sake of others? This is actually what the beginning of repenting is. And part of that involves, I think, going back and understanding how we got to where we are. It helps me repent, and the first step is being generous with the privilege and leveraging it for the sake of others. If I'm a person who just by race or just by class has been born as a two-coat person, one of those coats exists for someone who was born without any. As Martin Luther King loved to say, you cannot tell a bootless man to pull up their bootstraps. But if you and I actually have extra, if we have something to use, to give, it is our obligation as disciples and citizens of God's kingdom to use it for the sake of those who do not. Citizens understand that their wealth exists for others in whatever form that takes, which just means, like, what are you rich in? Are you rich in relationships? How are you using your wealth in that area to bring in isolated and disconnected people? Are you rich in family? How are you using that to bring in singles and people who do not have family or whose families live on the other side of the country? Are you rich in the platform that you have? How are you using your voice to speak for those whose voices have been silenced? Whether that's refugees or minorities or the unborn. How am I using the largeness of my platform to speak for voiceless people? Whatever I am wealthy in, Jesus says, that wealth exists for the sake of others. And if you want to be perfect, if you want the good life, if you want to follow me, take it, sell it, give it to those who need it. And then you will have treasures in heaven. And of course, the story ends tragically. The man walks away. It says he walked away grieving. Why? Because he had a lot of money. He was very rich. And I think every time I read that story about what was going on in his heart as he walked back home, I bet it was a very long walk. And I bet he thought about this moment for the rest of his life. 
And I, I want to think, because I'm an optimist and I'm an imaginative person, I want to think that at some point, 5, 10, 15, 30 years later, like he, got, he woke up and he sold his stuff off and he joined the church and he, he became this person who was able to say like, this happened to me and like I didn't, I didn't respond the first time, but the, but the call of Jesus, is, it never wavers. It is always available. I don't know. I just want to believe that, that that's the end of the story. But all we see in this moment is the man walks away. Because he thinks that it's up to him, that he's got to figure out how to do this all on his own. In fact, the disciples think that too. They're like, man, if this guy can't do it, no one can do it. And Jesus says, oh, it's, you're missing the point. It's always been impossible when it's just human power. But with God, all things are possible. God is the one who makes this possible. Do you and I right now feel like God might be putting his finger on something that we're just like, I don't have the energy or the power or the courage or even the knowledge to know how to offer this up to you, how to let go of this. And Jesus says, Oh, well, here, let me take some pressure off of you. With human power, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Like the Holy Spirit is the one who can help me begin to uncurl my fingers. I just have to be willing to ask for it. I just have to be willing to say, I I don't want this, but I want to want it. So could you please begin to help me want it? Could you begin to open my hands up so that I'd be a person who is willing to be generous with what has been given to me so that I can be your disciple, so that I can spend the currency in this kingdom that leads to treasures in heaven. Um, I want us to close today before we go to the confession with a prayer. It's a prayer that I, uh, I, I heard from a church up in New York City called uh, the Generosity Prayer. And I want us to read it all together. It's going to be on your screen. And it's just sort of a liturgy that we both Speak to what is true, and then we speak to what we hope to be true in us. And so would you pray these words with me, and then we'll go right into confession. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We bring nothing into this world, and we take nothing out of it. We who call Jesus Lord devote ourselves to resisting greed, which plunges the human heart into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We are determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not the uncertainty of wealth. We desire to be rich in good deeds, willing to share all that we have, laying up for ourselves treasure that will not decay, but will shine in the age to come. Amen. Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Now receive the words of absolution. May the almighty God have mercy on you. Through Jesus Christ, may he strengthen you in goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, may he keep you in eternal life. Amen. Um, 2 Corinthians 8 says, For we remember the grace of our Lord, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be rich. In other words, The gospel that I speak over you now is this. Jesus Christ was made poor so that you could have peace. He was made poor so that you could have access to the wealth of his peace. 
a peace that surpasses understanding. And so I speak these words to you. May the peace of our Lord be with you. Um, Turn to one another, get on the phone, text someone, pass the peace to them, and we'll continue with our service in a moment. We take this meal every week because it reminds us uh, what I just said, that through Jesus, we've already been given access to God. And what faith is, is just simply believing that and then moving towards him because he's already moved towards us. He's already moved towards us ultimately, totally. He's given himself entirely for us. And so when he calls us to something, he is calling us to do a thing that he has already been willing to do on our behalf. And so we receive this meal as a reminder of that. We take it in by faith and we believe that as we do so, we're actually not simply dipping a little bit of bread in some wine. We are, we are taking into our life the body and blood of the man who was willing to lay down his for ours. On the night when Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord took bread. And after he gave thanks for that bread, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. When we take this bread and we dip it in the cup, we declare the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come and make this food to be for us true communion with Jesus. Let this bread be his body and this wine be his blood. That as we receive it in faith, it would sanctify us and give us new hearts that would be willing to uncurl our fingers from the things in this world that feel so necessary so that we could attain your kingdom. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we uh, come to the table, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together with one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you. Hope to see you in a couple of minutes at communion. Um, you are loved. Blessings to you.